Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we are going to be talking about a movie that didn't necessarily need to be a movie, 1984's Firestarter. Absolutely. Before we get started, how was your week? My week is actually very good. It culminated with me remembering that I am a father, and I have done fatherly things. I spent the day making dad jokes and going to the movies. So many dad jokes. And well... It's a new thing I've just learned. How was your week? You know, it was full of dad jokes, so fine, I guess. Uh, it was good. It continues to be good. Good. I've been doing embroideries, and I will do more embroideries and editing. That's all I do. Embroideries and editing. And watching The Punisher. Yes, which was really good. We finally finished it. Just in time for Jessica Jones third season to come out, so... Is it going to be the last season? La Ultima de Todos. That's pretty good. Not the fact that it's the last one, just that your Spanish is really good. Well, I took many years of Spanish. So, you want to get into this uh, film that was made in 1984? Okay. Awesome. So, the overview of this film... Quick synopsis would be... All right, explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing. I just cannot get through my thick head. A couple who participated in potent, in a potent medical experiment gain telekinetic ability and then have a child who's pyrokinetic. That's all that happens before the movie starts. That's not exactly a synopsis of the movie. The movie is about... A father and daughter on the run from the men who made them monsters. And eventually captured by those people. Yes. And then they're in there for so long, and then it's so long. This movie is so long. There are several times during the course of this film when you actually had to wake me up. I, yes. I was drifting you off. You kept saying, I'm awake. And I'm like, you're snoring. <laughs> you're not awake. So this movie is an hour and 55 minutes long. Uh-huh. And it suffers from the Dr. Xavier problem, which is that... Tell me more. Telekinesis mm-hmm. is not a visual power. So somebody staring and shaking or putting their hands to their forehead, their fingertips to their forehead in in strong thought, it's just not a cinematic thing. Now, my understanding, and you may be able to speak to this, is that Dino De Laurentiis just went ahead and bought every Stephen King book that there was to buy. It appears to be so, because we're going to be seeing a lot of Dino De Laurentiis movies. But this one isn't is not a a cinematic thing. The fires are Mm -hmm. cinematic, and the fires are very cool, actually. Right. The special effects are really well done, especially considering these are all practical effects, and they were really dangerous. I was concerned that we were going to be seeing cartoon fire, but no. No, that was the last film. actual fire around a small child, which has its own problems. But uh, So the effects were very cool, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of nothing happening in this right. movie for very long stretches. So we have Drew Barrymore, who is nine in the film, and uh, let's see, how old was she when this movie was made? The whole cast of this movie is now, way better than it needs now, to be. Now, this is also. something I, I'd like to cover because... <laughs> There was something that happened with horror films in the 70s. Okay. She was seven when they were filming this. Oh, so she was playing older. Eight. She was born in 1975. This mm-hmm. movie was released when she was nine, but there's no way she was nine when they were making it. So seven, eight when she, right. when they were making it. So horror films had been kind of a basement genre for a very long time. In the 70s, producers discovered that they could make horror films with tiny budgets and no stars whatsoever. They were still producing horror films with the horror stars, but they were Did also... Did they forget that until the 2000s with the Paranormal Activity movies? Well, yeah. I think the thing is you had horror stars. You had Lugosi and Karloff and whatever. Right, okay. Who were like marquee attractions. Hollywood, right. And then later on, Christopher Lee and Vincent Price and those actors, right? But in the mid-70s, when 
tastes became more violent, you could have films you like... You had the, to have a young lady with some lungs, right. and that was it. But you had films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm-hmm. that did not need a star attraction. No. The, the, the bad taste of the film itself was the, the attraction. Or Night of the Living Dead or something like that, where the movies were just so gory and so spectacular in that direction that you didn't need stars. But old Hollywood and people who were you know, producers from that era kept doing these random films... Like The Omen, for instance, it has Gregory Peck and Lee Remick in it. Like, right. Why on earth did you need them in this movie? Or the sequel that has William Holden. And so they kept the thinking... The Exorcist has Max von Sydow. Right. Yeah. So these older producers had a habit of a sort of like, we're making a mainstream production, so to distinguish it from the cheap ones, we're going to put a huge star right up in front. Right. Here's now, Gregory Peck looking at you. This film had a $15 million budget, right. which is a lot of money in 1983 when and it I was think made. And most of it was in the last 10 minutes of the film. I think that's and right. And hiring this ridiculous this cast, cast of performers who were completely wasted in yes. this movie. David Keith acts mm-hmm. his face off oh in my this God, movie yeah. as Drew Barrymore's father. And also, I think that was a good casting decision he looks like he could be her father mm-hmm. so david keith drew barrymore awesome heather locklear plays the the mom who is dead at the at the time of right. the uh the film so we get her in three flashbacks she's yeah. criminally underused in this film you know who didn't need to be in this movie heather locklear right just didn't it could have been anybody it could have been it, anyone literally anybody and then we have George C. Scott mm-hmm. playing a Native American, or at least somebody who pretends to be a Native American. It's deeply problematic. Uh, he reminded me of an aging Steven Seagal. Oh, it's know, the ponytail. The ponytail, the Indian jacket, the weird semi-mystical <sighs> mumbo jacket. And this is, again, Steven Seagal. He's playing, what is it, Rainbird? Rainbird. Oy vey. It's... Okay problematic to say the least he's uh he works for the the quote unquote shop which is the department of what is scientific intelligence Mm -hmm. which is not a real thing but (laughs) as a matter of fact it sounds terrible the department of scientific intelligence if it was a real thing Mm -hmm. this is the same group of people that are going to dissect Elliot in E.T. Mm-hmm. and kidnap that child in Flight of the Navigator. Oh, it's not the that. same group of... Yeah, <laughs> that, that's the evil group that, right. that's run by the government that does shady scientific stuff. Yes, and they definitely know that there are aliens and they're mm-hmm. definitely stealing the aliens' technology. I'm and sure also, that's another Stephen King story, too. Well... We'll get to the Langoliers eventually, oh, right? Oh, okay. There is, I, was, I, I actually just, don't know that for sure. I thought maybe, what was the one about the creatures that live underground? Um, the Tommyknockers. I keep oh, that's that the other one that right. I get mixed up with the Langoliers, which I actually think is the one I was thinking of. Okay. Uh, we've got Art Carney and Louise Fletcher. All right. Cri- also criminally underused. I'd like to point out, Louise Fletcher, who won an Academy Award, a BAFTA Award... And a Golden Globe. Not for this app. Not for this movie. <laughs> and she has, what, ten lines in this movie? And She's meant to be nice. <laughs> right? She's the nice lady that Charlie can go to at the end after everyone who loves her is dead. Spoiler alert, everyone who loves her dies. Uh, and then we've got Martin Sheen. Mm-hmm. He gets to play a little bit nuts, but not as nuts as in uh, Night Shift. Nope. No, 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 it's... Um, the Dead Zone. Dead Zone, right. not, a, not as nuts as in the Dead Zone, but he gets he's in charge of the shop. Also a BAFTA winner, actually. Well, you know. So this cast is bonkers good mm-hmm. for no reason. Right. I mean, th- th- and this goes back to, and the reason why I wanted to set that up is that you could have had a cast of no-name actors doing... All of these same parts. I think... And it would be the same film, essentially. The one person I think that you need to keep is Mm -hmm. Drew Barrymore. Well, yes. I don't know that you could find another eight-year-old who could... Commit like this? Yeah. All right. And And it's a shame because mm -hmm. it destroyed the first half of her life. I am glad that she got... You know, pulled herself out of that. But uh, she's quite good. But once again, 
it's a lot of her standing still and staring and then shaking <laughs> with power. Right. Oh, and there's one more. The uh, Tony Award-winning Moses Gunn. <laughs> oh, we don't know who that even is. And that is one of the few black actors that really made a headway in the 70s and 80s. And uh, he's probably most famous for, let's see... I don't even know who he is in this movie. He was one of the scientists. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, the one black guy. Right. Got, got you. Yeah, mm. there's not a lot of people of color in this film. Right, and so he's an he, amazing The one actor. person of color is clearly not a person of color, so that's something. And Freddie Jones, the English actor, who also plays one of the other scientists, who, again, is an extraordinary actor. If you ever see David Lynch's movie, The Elephant Man... He completely yeah. steals that movie. He's amazing in it. I don't need to see it. It's horrible, but it's a great movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a horrible experience. You're like, oh, God, I don't watch, watch this guy suffer anymore. Yeah, that's I'm going to yeah. not. So Andy McGee and Vicki Tomlinson are Heavy Locklear and David Keith, two broke students who are uh, submitting themselves for testing. Mm-hmm. And they get shot up with... In, a, in what they call a double-blind study. Okay, please explain this to our audience, because this is amazing. Okay. So a double-blind study means that the, both the people participating in the study and the people mm. performing the study do not know who's getting what. Right, okay. And yet we see vials clearly marked with the substance that they're supposed to be getting being injected into them. So... That's a that's a no blind study, zero mm-hmm. blind. Everybody sees that it says whatever, lot six on it. Okay. So Vicky gets the ability to read minds, which we don't get explicitly. We just get that she hears that Andy like projects compliments at her, which, <laughs> which she's anyway. Heather fucking Locklear. Everybody who, every man and woman who's <laughs> ever seen her has had these thoughts and projected them at her. Mm. So it's, you know, and I was like, wait, is she reading his thoughts or is he projecting her thoughts into his head or into her head? Because uh, both of those things are possible. Well, they seem to be communicating telepathically while they're, um... Chained to the bed. Uh, chained to the bed under the influence of the lot number six. Yeah. Right? And the other Which thing is that also happens, a mild hallucinogen, so they're all high as well. Right. And it causes other people to have some sort of weird uh, hemorrhaging from the eyes some of them and stuff like from that. from the eyes, because yeah. why wouldn't you? Right. Uh, and uh, Andy gets the power to um, push people to do what he wants. Mm hmm. So he can make them see, like if he hands you a, a dollar bill, he can tell you it's a $500 bill and you see it. Also, $500 bill is a big ask because that's like barely a real thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he uses this on a taxi driver played by Antonio Fargas because once again, we have to have the most recognizable faces in the bit parts of the movie. I didn't know. I don't Better know. Better known is. as Huggy Bear from oh, Years shit, of Starsky right. and Hutch. Yes, that's right. The original Mac Daddy. <laughs> so they end up married... And then they end up having a baby, uh-huh. and that baby has powers that it cannot control. Mm-hmm. And that baby is Charlie, Charlene, played by the lovely, tiny Drew Barrymore. Mm-hmm. Mostly her power is lighting shit on fire by making things hot. It's not like poof that's on fire. Mm-hmm. She raises the ambient temperature to the flammability point of whatever it is right. that's in front of her. And we see that a couple of times in the movie. There's also some other ability that she has that just escapes me right now that she demonstrates over the course of the film. Well, she's a little bit uh, telekinetic. Right. She can move things. Well, she's a, Oh, that's it. She's aware when the agents are coming to get her. That's she has right. premonitions. Yes, that's right. So um, Andy comes home from work one day. Why does Andy have to work? Although, mm-hmm. when he pushes people, it makes his brain hurt, and sometimes he bleeds from his nose. Right. So they're saying... They uh, think that he might have, like, tiny strokes, pinprick right. strokes, when when it's when he's doing a lot of exertion. And it could be the idea, I think, is that, that he was not born with this ability, whereas his daughter was born mm-hmm. with it. So. Not to mention, they mentioned the scientific pieces. Mm-hmm. It, it spa- the, the power comes from the pituitary gland these adults got it after they went through puberty, mm-hmm. which right, is when exactly. your 
pituitary Terry gland kind of goes into overdrive. So they're like, well, this young lady hasn't gone through puberty yet. So as powerful as she may be now, she's only going to get more right. powerful as she gets older. Well, she'll become something on the level of atomic threat from what they describe. That is what they describe. So Andy comes home from work one day. Um, Vicky has been killed and Charlie is missing. He goes and finds her and then they go on the run and mm-hmm. then they're on the run for a while. But not very long, actually. They get caught, go to a farm where the shop is, mm-hmm. and then we spend a very long time as Charlie gets comfortable with Rainbird. In a really uncomfortable... Charlie is comfortable with Rainbird, Rainbird is comfortable with Charlie, and the audience is really uncomfortable. Uncomfortable with that, all because of it. Because there is a very strong strain of sort of pederastry going but on here. I wouldn't say that. Rainbird wants to kill Charlie, uh-huh. wants to feel Charlie's life force leaving her body because she's like the most powerful thing that he's ever seen. And she, he thinks that she he's going to take her the life force. The power of the gods. It's this really bastardized, gross uh, Native American uh-huh. belief of you kill your enemies and you take their power. It's that, uh-huh. but it's twisted because... He's a grown-ass old man, uh-huh. and she is a child of nine. So, ew. Which makes it uncomfortable when he keeps going on about how beautiful she is. He and does that, do that. Th- that's why I said there's a strain here. Uh, and it's not particularly subtle, this weird kind of infatuation that he has with the character. Right. And that was like, it, it felt gross. It yes. felt, mm, no. He, um, he makes himself weak to sort of uh, ingratiate himself to her. Uh, meanwhile, Dad is being drugged, and they say that they could never be, like, you see the doctors talking to each other, they can never be put together again, because he, she does whatever he tells her to do. It's like they think he's pushing her, but I don't think that's it. I just think it's, that's her dad, and so she's going to do what her dad tells her to do. So they sort of goad her into doing these various tests. The first mm-hmm. test is light a bunch of char- uh, like wood chips, mm-hmm. which she does no problem, and then makes a, a, a bathtub boil and light on fire. I don't know how water burns like that, but it did. It, it doesn't did. flint. And then, like, 15 minutes later, mm-hmm. we watch basically the same scene, only cinder blocks. She, like, says cinder block wall on fire. None of these things is flammable. Well, except for the wood chips, wood I guess. Wood chips are flammable. All of these things are flammable water? at a temp. R- well, I don't water, know water and cinder block. I'm just, I imagine they crumble. I don't think they burn. I don't, I don't. They do in this, so, it. but it's. We're seeing the same scenes multiple times for mm-hmm. no reason, just right. to make this a two-hour movie. I don't get it. Uh, and then finally, daddy and daughter get back together, and then it's like, you have to go. Mm-hmm. And he like sacrifices himself, sort of. And then she burns the whole fucking place Which is ground. really the part worth watching. Um, um, yeah, it's a ten-minute sequence. It's, right. It's fucking intense. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of people in those fire suits just running. Yeah, and, and when you say that, it's it doesn't look like people in fire suits. It looks like people catching fire. Yeah. There's a really, I mean, you know that it, it must have been somehow safer to film, but these are this is live fire. These are practical effects. Things are blowing up in smithereens. People are on fire, jumping out of windows. It's really impressive. And there is a kind of a neat trick she does about generating so much heat that when they fire bullets at her, they just sort of like melt. Yeah, she like gets a kind of like a, a heat shield wave. around her. Yeah. Um, oh, Rainbird has died. Mm-hmm. Uh, she kills him because he killed her dad. That's right. who. That's who ultimately dispatches Andy. Uh, and then she goes. Now the whole time, there was this sort of plot where her dad kept writing letters to the New York Times Mm -hmm. to sort of break the shop open and tell their story because he figured once it was out in the media, they'd be safe, um, which keeps getting derailed in various ways. And so the last scene, she goes, she ends up back at this kindly farmers, which is 
um, what is it, Art Carney and, and Louise Fletcher. Fletcher's mm-hmm. um, farm, and I guess they're going to take her in, even though she still can't control her own powers, so yeah. hope they don't die. And then they take her to New York City to the newspaper, and she's going to go tell her story, and then she'll be safe. I guess that's how it, you know, works. So, <laughs> how did you feel about it? Ah, this movie could have been... A, this would have been a really good hour Twilight Zone. Uh-huh. 45 minutes is what this story needs to tell. Mm-hmm. The big problem with it is, like I said, telekinetic. Telekinesis is not a cinematic thing. Mm-hmm. So to keep showing a guy looking pained right. now, gets old pretty immediately. David Keith, God bless him, all right, does this bit where he grabs the hair on the side of his yes. head so he looks vaguely like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone and starts shouting and... and, and he's, it, like, he's like it, vibrating and then his nose starts right. to bleed and it, it happens is ridiculous repeatedly. looking. And it's not convincing the first time and it certainly isn't. And part of the issue I think here, to go back to, like I said, anybody could have played half the parts in here. There were throwaway parts where you have... Academy Award winners and multiple award yes. winners just stuffed into every part because somehow they thought that was the Marquee Valley was having all these big stars all when in truth stars, it was going to be just Stephen King. Yeah. Right? Um, and the special effects alone would have gotten the attention of the audience that they were looking at. Um, oh, the other big problem I had, mm-hmm. this is 1984, mm-hmm. and the soundtrack was done by Tangerine Dream. Oh, yes. And it is this synth-heavy, dated... Right. Soundtrack that is uh, a little bit grating, kind of a lot grating. What are all the kids listening to these days? <laughs> it wasn't even it wasn't it even that kind of felt that way to me, like it was an attempt again, this weird kind of attempt to draw on both the youth market and then people who like seeing George C. Scott movies. Oh god. Doctor Strangelove, Patton, and Firestarter. Just George C. Scott is a great actor. Uh-huh. But this is a racist portrayal. It's racist. Mm -hmm. Period. Like, what are we doing? I don't love the character generally. Mm -hmm. I have problems with the character generally. But the least they could have done was hired a Native American actor. Because of all the things in the world that George C. C. Scott is, is Native Native American is not one of them. I think this isn't the first time he played Native American. I'm trying to remember. Of course not. Well, anyhow, but the point is, <laughs> I just really felt like it was just so overdone. And, you know, we talked about Christine being a slight story that was worked over by a, a great director and was made to an entertaining movie, right? This is a movie that was roughly around the same length, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And it just moved incredibly it slowly. Moved very slowly. And I think it was the director who... As famous, I think the the most famous film Mark Lester did was Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, maybe he's moved into mm-hmm. the sci-fi uh, arena, right? With things like Pterodactyl, <laughs> Poseidon Rex. Oh, these are yes. these are Seafy films. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's he. I mean, it, he's a working actor. He has been making films the whole, or director. Right. Yeah, right. His whole right, situation. but it's he's just not a bad director. He's not a bad director, but you also have these amazing personalities, and I'm sure that George C. Scott, who's notoriously hard to work with, or Martin Sheen, or mm-hmm. any of them, really either felt the material was beneath them, or were if you weren't a director that could call them all to heel, then you were going to get run over, and that well, might have happened. Art Carney, they all had reputations. The screenplay was not. Mm-hmm. Very good. It right. was written by Stanley Mann, and I'm looking at his history. Um, he didn't, you know, not write anything. He wrote he wrote uh, Damien Omen um, Damien Omen Two, which is, which is probably good. how he got this. Yeah. Then he wrote Conan the Destroyer, so he wrote the Immortal Lines. Uh-huh. 
The, to hear the lamentations of the women. Well, that was Conan the Destroyer, so that's the sequel. So he didn't even write that one. It's, that was the Destroyer. That's the one he wrote. No, yeah, but that's the sequel. Oh. The first one's Conan the Barbarian. And is that where he said right, that? That's where he says that. So he didn't even get that line. <laughs> well, never mind. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, the film originally was supposed to be directed by John Carpenter, oddly enough. Oh, interesting. And, and he went... This isn't a movie. Well, no. So he, I'm gonna not direct. Here's it. how Hollywood works. He had a fail. Uh, the thing, the original, uh, the, not the original thing, the thing, the remake that he did, directed in the '80s, was a commercial failure at the right. time. So they just thought he was a risk now. But he did Christine. Right, because it was a like smaller a scale movie ago. without 15 million stars in it. Right. Oh, maybe. Yeah. So again, this was a big budget, budget forward, cast forward kind of movie. And I think that John Carpenter, having come from, I mean, we reviewed Halloween many moons ago. Um, yes. He knew how to get the best value out of a small cast. And the only star he wanted was Donald Pleasance. And so he knew how to do that. Let's market it with a horror star that to all the horror fair, audiences like. The budget like. of Christine was 97 or $9.7 million. Right. So it was two thirds of this. But it's also possible that. Mm-hmm. Martin Sheen or George C. Scott were like, I'm not going to work with him. Right. Which y'all did bad. You know, one of the actors I find very interesting is Janet Lee. Okay? This is a very beautiful woman who is an you know, old Hollywood film star. She was married to Tony Curtis at one point and had her daughter, Jamie Lee, right? Uh, who inherited her figure. But Janet Lee was just this actress who never got points for being particularly good at being an actress. She was a pretty object that got dangled in front of the camera. But she did something really interesting. She would make really smart choices. You get a chance to work with Alfred Hitchcock on Psycho, I'm going to work with Alfred Hitchcock, even yeah, though I'm only... it's a horrible mistake. Right. <laughs> don't do it. I'm only in the movie for 10 minutes, I'll still do it, even if I'm a big star and should deserve to have a bigger part in the movie. She hears from her daughter about what a great guy... John Carpenter is, and he's an innovative director. I'm going to work with that guy. And she winds up working with him in The Fog. But, you know, there's a weird-ass movie that uh, Frank Sinatra wants to make about political assassinations. And oh, so she winds up appearing in The Manchurian Candidate. Manchurian Candidate, yeah. It's like, okay, there's this crazy script that uh, has a Mexican sheriff played by Charlton Heston, but it's my chance to work with Orson Welles. So you can see how, like, Janet Lee was one of those people who just, every time she saw an opportunity, I'm going to grab it. Right. And so there are actors who can do that, just go, who just like regardless will go, I'm going to take the chance and try to do this. And so Janet Lee has this amazing filmography, even if people didn't think she was particularly talented. But anyhow, yeah, going back to this one, Burt Lancaster was supposed to play Martin Sheen's part. So there was, interesting. Richard Dreyfuss was right. supposed to play I know, which I can't see at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's interesting. I, I can't see that one. I'm just like, mm, but... Yeah, I just think... This and they had uh-huh. a screenplay that Stephen King liked, and mm-hmm. then Carpenter hired uh, somebody else to write another screenplay, and I'm like, well, if the, how many do you need? Yeah, Mark, And, and, uh, yeah. and the, this screenplay stays closer to the novel than the other screenplays did. Uh-huh. My sense is that the other screenplays were more cinematic, because this yeah, one... Yeah, this one, it, it's like the beginning of the film, the chase scenes, where they're running down and being chased, there's mm-hmm. like some impetus to those scenes, right? Um, and then the film comes to a dead stop in the middle, where Mr. Rainbird is closing up to Drew Barrymore's character. And getting winning over her friendship. Yeah. And it seems like the test scenes of setting water on fire and stuff yeah. was done specifically to try to keep the action moving during this incredibly right, but it's slow just the same part. scene over and over right. again and it's, for an uh-huh. hour. And the amount of scenery chewing Martin Sheen does in these scenes. Yeah. He's constantly yelling, did you see that? You know, it's yeah, like, oh yes. my God. Like, yes, we saw it. Yeah, we just we saw, all saw we it. We literally all right. were sitting here watching it. And yes, we did get it on tape. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Um, it just, it's astounding. I think the director didn't know how to rein in the actors or something because some of them are just going way Or the director overboard. was like, this movie is boring. Right fucking chew up the scenery because we need something to look at right. and like yeah like you said David Keith putting his hands on his head and staring directly into the camera isn't going to do it for an hour and 55 no. minutes uh, and I think that and, and I'll go back to in 1978 Brian De Palma directed a movie called The Fury 
which was almost considered like a sequel to Carrie. Okay. And it has the exact same plot, which is a secret government agency trying to control telepathic people. Okay. And that was much more cinematic. There's great scenes and some really violent graphic scenes about uh, Amy Irving, for instance, she has the power. Even De Palma doing the telekinetic scenes in Carrie mm-hmm. is more cinematic than what he we get here. He got a lot here. more visual interest into it. Even even uh-huh. when he's doing split screen for no reason, stop doing split screen for right. no reason, everyone. But, uh, yeah, it just... And then a few years later, David Cronenberg did Scanners, yes. which also had a much more yeah. visceral kind of idea. Well, there of there are actual heads exploding right. in that movie, so... Well, The Fury also had, like, Amy Irving set someone on fire, you know, or every time she uses her power, she draws it from another person, so she touches them, and then they start spontaneously bleeding. Oh, no! So they were... It's a really interesting film, if you ever get a chance to see it. Um, just it be warned. Like, she sounds like, um... Rogue, the X-Men. Yeah, there's a lot of X-Men. And there was in this film, too. There's a whole lot of this kind of X-Men feeling like this is kind of what... That's the other thing that's really confusing is... So this is a shop location, Mm -hmm. but they're like... It looks like a plantation. There's a stable with horses. She's riding horses at some points. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a big house. There, There are... Dozens and dozens of people there because at night, at the very end, it's a mm-hmm. night scene, right. and the people that are streaming out of this building are there's like dozens of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are all of them doing? And also, is it only for? It looked like it was Charlie just... and her dad, or are right. there other people with other powers that we just never? I see? think the impression that I got from it, and the script is really kind of vague as to a lot of the details in this film, is it. It seemed like the it was a shop location that they got moved to. Right. So I don't. But think... I'm saying, are mm-hmm. all of those people there for these two people, or are there others? I don't know if there's other people there. I think they just moved them to the closest facility. So I don't know that there might be other people there. I don't. Just, again, it just seems. Yes, it seems like a waste. Odd. Yeah, it's this big campus with mm-hmm. all of these people, and. Yeah, like Martin Sheen basically promises Rainbird that he's gonna give her him this little girl. Which yeah, again, is like that's why it feels really unsettling. kind of skeezy and weird to me. Um, so Stephen King mm-hmm. in 2012 described this film as one of the worst made from his books, mm-hmm. uh, describing it as flavorless, like cafeteria mashed potatoes. <laughs> I'm just like, love. I think but he's I, he's, he's being generous. Well, honestly, though. You could cut this into a fairly entertaining, but mm-hmm. I'm saying 45 mm-hmm. minutes. Right. There is an hour and 10 minutes of why am I watching this. Well, it's it's very much like when we saw Suicide Squad, right? There's a lot of scenes where people have flashbacks or memories of things that we've already seen. Right. And so it just but, winds up repeating the same story over and over right, and over again. Right, but in again. this one, it's just, yeah, it's just a lot of, like, okay, And I likened this when we were watching it. So Mm -hmm. a movie that I saw multiple times when I was a kid, like whenever there was a teacher sick or whatever, they put on Flight of the Navigator. Okay. So I have seen Flight of the Navigator probably conservatively 20 times. Mm -hmm. I've seen this movie a lot. Not since I've been an adult, but when I was a kid, I watched it a lot. And I feel like... There are parts in Flight of the Navigator where the kid is in a facility. Mm-hmm. Those parts make up maybe 15 minutes of the film because it's the most boring part. Right. Get a kid out of the facility. The kid is in a facility and in danger or out of the facility. Those are the options. But mm-hmm. this movie, she's just in the facility for an hour. Yeah. Playing video games. Like, what are we watching? It was just, there's no reason. And I'm sure that these are scenes from the book. Mm-hmm. They don't translate into a well, cinematic experience. It winds experience. up becoming this very lumpy screenplay where, again, it just stops dead. And yeah. now we're, it's like we had the action part or the suspense part. Now we're doing yeah. the... Um, the drama part. The drama part. And where then, she's stuck here and, oh, she lights some... 
wood on fire, mm-hmm. and then she lights some cinder blocks on fire. Which is bullshit. And I, I was like, are they going to do a third one that's I, the same scene I can again? light wood chips on fire. There's nothing spectacular about that. You know, it's like I do it when we do barbecue. It's, I, I don't need to see that. That's just kind of pointless. It's not barbecue. It's grilling. That's, I'm just okay, saying. Right, I don't want to piss anybody off that believes in barbecue. <laughs> um, just but, people just yeah, it's, movie. It's just not... Mm-hmm. It's not a movie. It's not... Yes. Now, again, I have to say, when I was a kid... But I will... Uh, and I'm not... Mm-hmm. I, I will not take anything away from David Keith. He's right. acting his He's face off. He's trying really hard. He's doing everything Okay, he here's can the other do. thing, before I get to my other point. Um, and this is where I blame the director. It's like, he doesn't cut the scenes properly. No. So when David Keith discovers Heather Locklear dead, we just get him in one mostly continuous take, running upstairs, screaming, yelling, crying, finding her body, and running around calling his daughter's name. Yeah. He's just, he's like, you could cut this. You see him falling up the stairs. Like, it's some of it's effective, but it's entirely too long. It's just, yeah, it just goes on forever. Yeah. And he's at a 10 the whole time. Yeah. He starts at a 10 and just stays up there. Uh So... As a viewer, you're just like, I mean, clearly your wife is dead. Right. Yep, there she is. Clearly your daughter's missing. Yep, she's not here. Like, there's nothing... I'm not attached to any of these characters. (laughs) That scene almost becomes funny because he's just running upstairs in a panic, like opening up, what was it, the closet doors? And she's on an ironing board or something? She's (laughs) in the kitchen Uh in... Yes, in the basically the closet that has the fold-out ironing board. Uh, she's like on that and has been folded up into the thing. Uh-huh. So he opens the door and the ironing board falls out and she's laying on this it. And is... I'm just like, you could have hired okay. anyone. But and that... that's Heather Lockler laying on that ironing that board. Scene, what kills me is that, and again, being older, not too old, but older, this is like a gag out of an Abbott and Costello comedy. Yeah. He opens the door and an ironing board with the body yeah. falls out and then he starts screaming going, Abbott, you know, and running around, you know, like trying to, to escape, you know, the murder or the killer in this particular movie. But that's what it felt like. And seeing someone play that straight did not work. No. It winds up being unintentionally that's the funny. Thing. If they had camped it up, uh-huh. that might yeah, have worked. That might have worked too. But yeah, everyone is earnestly at a 10. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought at some point somebody might slap. I thought at some point George C. Scott may have slapped Martin Sheen. Also, I love that Martin Sheen, the first time we see him, he's riding his bicycle into (laughs) into the office or into this building, which is Uh not in an office. It's just a big house. He's riding his bike in a suit. And I'm like, that's a weird choice. (laughs) That's a real weird Here's joke. the picture of evil. You know, a guy on yeah, a bicycle like, <laughs> going to work. Mm, he I, seems environmentally, like, sound to right. me. I don't... Yeah, it was... But yeah, as I, So, I think that what I would have... And Charlie uh, is not a fleshed-out character. She no. is our main character. Well, she also... And we're supposed to care for her because she's a child. She's not sympathetic, though. She is Because isn't. she has these flashes of temper and, like, sets her mom on fire. She did set so her mom on it's, fire. So it's not like I'm really in favor of this kid, either. And then she makes dumb choices, but... Well, she's not. Right. But I also... I, one thing I did like, and I mentioned mm-hmm. this when we were watching, was she'd have a flare of, like, a tantrum, and mm-hmm. then it would go away immediately. And I actually liked that right. because that is what happens with kids. Sometimes it's like they've forgotten that they were pissed off three seconds ago and then they're fine. But her flares of temper come with, you know, vast destruction. One of the things I didn't care for with realizing her using her power was the weird fan that blows her hair up. Yeah. I mean, it... It's because they needed I know, they needed some sort of visual thing. And I know that when Brian De Palma does it in Carrie, he does these weird sort of jump cuts right to yes, her eyes. and real was, close to her right, eyes. There was something yeah. visually interesting about what he was trying to do, but this kind of like, there literally looks like there's somebody with a really strong hair dryer mm-hmm. behind her, blowing her hair up, yep. and then there's light on her face, and it looks like a stage trick, basically. It does right. not look very cinematic at also, all. Also, they put a very small child in actual fire. Right. And I'm wondering if this is one of the miracles of editing, because we've seen some... 
some really great stuff in the last couple of movies. Well, yeah, not, Cujo and right. Christine had Christine some... had some really wonderful editing that covered for a lot of it. And I think that an editor could have helped with some of the performances in this movie. But that contributed to a really spectacular ending. It also really felt like one take and done. Yeah. It really felt like they they got the words. Right. You said all the words that are on this paper, so I guess we can go to the next thing. And I'm just like, you don't want to get that again? So the ratio used to Martin be... Sheen's freaking the fuck right. out for no reason right now. I, is the ratio supposed to be seven to one when you shoot a scene? Or it used to be. And, and I understand with kids... You, this is the take you went with. Yeah. Is, but no, no. That doesn't cover it because even scenes where the kid is not in, they're no, all. No, that's like, the thing. I know it the, really. David felt Keith's like, running around the house scene, or Martin Sheen, you know, screaming at people about whether. Did you, whether, see, it? Did did you see, see what you, what hey, everyone just saw? On tape. Yes, a brick sir. wall explodes. Of course, we saw it, yes. dumbass. Yeah. You know, we so blew up on it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it, this was not. Yeah, no, it really did mm-hmm. feel like take one. You're right. Everybody uh, said all the words, right? Next setup. Next setup. What? That's not. You're not. I don't feel like you're done. I have a picture also of George C. Scott, who's also a director himself, just telling the director, "I'm going to do one take and I'm done, or we're 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 finished with this scene now. (laughs) This is all I'm willing to do." (laughs) Because I can totally see that happening. Just a young director getting railroaded by all these people. Maybe. So. I do want to say mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about this movie mm-hmm. is the foreign language titles. Okay. Specifically. <laughs> it's nothing to do with the film itself. No. Nope. There's not Speci- much to recommend. So Firestarter is the name of the movie. It's mm-hmm. the name of this. It's also the name of a prodigy song that always gets in my head mm-hmm. when I think about this movie. It's not great. But in, um, in Mexico, no, in Argentina... And maybe in Mexico, let me look. Nope. In Argentina, it was called Ojos de Fuego. That's much better. Eyes of Fire. But better than that, in Mexico and Argentina and a bunch of other Spanish-speaking places, it's called Llamas de Vegasa, which means Flames of Revenge. It <laughs> sounds Flames like, of Revenge is a very good title. It sounds like a telenovela, you know. Um... That still would have felt shorter than this movie. But yeah, I like the, the Spanish names for the title. So the taglines are mm. another situation. Uh, <laughs> which, there there aren't a whole bunch in this one like there um, are in some other ones. But let me... So she has the power, an evil destructive force. That's terrible. Guys, try it again. Will she have the power to survive? Also <laughs> terrible. This is the worst. I'm preparing you now. All right. I should cross you, myself. <laughs> if you get on her bad side, you're toast. Oh, oh no. Wow. Somebody wrote that down and then somebody else put it on a poster. <laughs> and then there's one more that's just like the whole synopsis and it's very long and I'm not even going to... Um, and there's one scene I'd like to address, okay. actually, for which I brought resources. Oh, okay. This is Lemuel's Martial Arts Corner. At one point, we see... Don't lower your voice, dude. <laughs> Mr. Rainbird. And I'm not sure exactly who the character is that he assassinates at this point in the movie. To demonstrate that he's an assassin, karate chops someone under the nose and kills them. Instantly. Right? Now, oh, yes. The sad part is that what he karate chops, <laughs> he makes actual physical contact with a dummy whose face then dents. The rubber dummy that that the camera stays on. Uh-huh. So it looks like he just punched Wilson from <laughs> Castaway. It's clearly yes. just a ball uh-huh. with a face on it. Right. And I'm just like... Wait, rewind that because and then they go back and they show this broken like the face like of the, the dude right. and I'm like, why did you leave that shot in here? So I'm quoting a book which I'm showing you. I have actually put on my glasses for this because I wanted to look more erudite. You did. He's he's podcasting in glasses, which has never happened. Medical implications of karate blows by Brian C. Adams, and during which time uh, he. In the process of uh, writing this book for his thesis, earning his black belt, he shows what happens if you injure certain vulnerable parts of the body, 
and you cannot cause instant death by hitting somebody under the nose. He says that he he hits him in the nose and then shards so hard that shards of bone go into the brain. That's what he says. This is what he says. This is actually untrue and, and medically impossible. Now, you can apparently cause respiratory paralysis and death, may develop uh, from broken dislocated teeth and blood caught near the windpipe, mm. may cause a spasm of the vocal cords with closing off all the air supply. However, it is not an instantaneous death. The person effectively chokes to death. So uh, this has been your martial arts minute. No, you cannot kill a person by karate chopping them under the nose, at least instantaneously, and you're not sending shards of bone into their brain because you actually there's other parts of the skull that would get in the way. Yes. It's, your it brain is, is a, pretty protected in it there. It is a very weird scene because it's apropos of nothing. It's faintly creepy that the guy wakes up and sees George C. Scott standing over him. Over his, yeah, that's an image. That was the, probably the creepiest image in the entire movie, frankly. But um, other than that, n- no, even that scene didn't work. Like, I, I'm, you constantly see him shooting people, so we didn't need this other scene to prove that he's dangerous. Right. So we're not going to be watching the TV movie sequel to mm-hmm. this, which came out in 2002. It was called Firestarter 2 Rekindled with Marguerite Moreau as a grown-up Charlie. And Malcolm McDowell as Rainbird, which is not better than George C. Scott as Rainbird, and also Rainbird is dead. But, like, could we stop? Making white dudes Native American people. Yeah, Malcolm McDowell is even is an even stranger choice. Or just choice. change the guy's <laughs> name so he's <laughs> not a Native American dude. That would be even better. Um, oh, I did want to say that the book. So there's not a lot of threads between this book and his other work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is dedicated to Shirley Jackson. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, who had. Oh, no, she died well before. I was like, yeah. just that. Uh, in memory of Shirley Jackson, who never needed to raise her voice. Oh, that's good. Which is a very good dedication. So, uh, yeah, that's as much as I want to talk about this but film. I have one question, though, for you. Yes. We're aware that Stephen King has a very large body of work. Yeah. And he revisits the same kind of stories and material a lot. Mm-hmm. So did you feel, as I did, that there was... An exploration of the exact same theme as Carrie, and even a similar climax, at least. And I don't know if the book is this way. The film certainly feels a lot like, and then she gets pissed off and kills everyone. So, did you think it was, like, almost too similar? No, because of the age. Mm. Honestly, I do think that uh, a, a woman coming to age in puberty and a child, are that's different enough. For me to be like, it's different. Now, do keep in mind, yes, he, these are two of his first eight books. So, yeah, it feels to me, though, this book always reminded me of a Dean Koontz book more than a Stephen King book. Mm, Uh, Specifically, Cold Fire, which um, is the first Dean Koontz book I ever read uh, and deals with a. I want to say a psychic or somebody who has visions, maybe. But this book never really felt Stephen King to me as much as it did, uh, like Dean Koontz. Right. Uh, And it was published in 1980, so pretty early in the whole thing. So, oh, yep. uh, This book is mentioned in the Tommyknockers. Okay. Uh, the shop because the shop in the novel the shop takes control of the aliens. What did I say? Okay. What did I say? There we go. <laughs> uh, also involved in the Arrowhead Project, which resulted in the uh, titular supernatural disaster in the mist, and they're mentioned oh. in the Langoliers. Much better book. Much better film. So, uh, the shop is that hazy mm-hmm. aliens sci-fi. Thing, but he doesn't do a whole lot with them. It's just those three and this one, so four uh, books. Whereas maybe another author would have made that their X Files, right? Uh, 
And I'm kind of glad he didn't stick with that. I don't know. I prefer the magic-y stuff. Or right. I'm glad that there isn't... I think if he did it too much in his work, it would feel like the uh, conspiracy episodes of The X-Files, which I never liked. I always preferred Monster of the Week to the yeah. the deep cover-up and the Well, because it went on too long and it got too wobbly. It felt like they didn't know... There wasn't a clear direction what, it was yeah. going in. So, and every once in a while, he would completely reorganize that and start all over. So I like it coming back occasionally, but mm-hmm. I'm glad that it isn't like right. a fundamental building block of his universe. So... That's that. Next week, mm-hmm. we're going to watch Cat's Eye. Ooh, there we go. Once more, Drew Barrymore, Stephen King, and a lot of indifferent direction. <laughs> so really? It's a three-story... Mm-hmm. Um, what are they called? Uh, well, there's a lot of different names. Omnibus, Portmanteau. Okay, yes. There's like a lot of different names for it. Anthology is probably... Anthology the, works, yeah. And this is one term. that I actually remember quite well mm-hmm. from seeing it when I was younger. I've never so. really seen it. I saw one segment I of it a long time ago. I specifically remember the James Wood segment. Yeah, that's so. the one segment I saw. Uh, so we will be talking about that next week. It's also available to rent on Amazon. I didn't see it free anywhere at the mm. moment. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about next week. It's it's uh, 1985 and it's listed as comedy, horror, thriller. So... Hopefully it's at least one of those. Right. <laughs> and, oh, we're out of 1984 already. There was only wow. one. Two in 1985. So, Cat's what Eye was it? up Two. next week. The uh, other one is Silver Bullet, which we actually uh, saw fairly recently. Just recently, yes. Uh, but we'll watch it again. I liked it, so that's fine. There are some really good st- things in it. There's some things that could have used some trimming, too. but So... Before we watch Cat's Eye, mm-hmm. and after to get our the taste of Firestarter out of our mouths and our eyes, what do you want to recommend this week? I think you have many options. I what have many options, but I think you're going to go with one that I really support, too. So I'm going to give a you film. You don't know that, what I'm going to do. I'm basing it off of what you're doing. So um, We saw a film this morning. Uh do you need to know what it's called? You didn't need to ask me about that. It embarrassed <laughs> me in front of people, though. No. I'm going to cut this out. Okay. So uh, what is the name of it? Late, Late Night. Night. Uh, we saw a film called Late Night with Mindy Kaling. She wrote it. And Emma Thompson. And I really, I didn't really have much in the way of expectations. I'm not really good with comedy since I really have no sense of humor. Which is why but, I was surprised that this was the movie that you picked Well, because to watch the thing today. was, of the list, uh, I couldn't see Godzilla a fourth time. I mean. <laughs> For Happy Father's Day, I'm going to see Godzilla again. But I, um, I wanted to, I was interested in a couple of things, but this is the one where I felt, from the cast, I was really kind of interested in what they were going to do with it. And it's one of two comedies I've seen this last week that were really, I felt, on point. Yeah. I know you felt it wasn't jokey enough. Well, yes. Mm-hmm. We've watched a couple of comedies. Um, this one and the Netflix film, Always Be My Maybe. Right. Both written by people I think are very funny. Right. Both of which I wanted to have more jokes in them. But that's... I didn't dislike the movies. Mm-hmm. I just wanted more jokes. Right. To me, because I don't register comedy too well. Which this, is a lie. You should hear film, when, when Monty Python is on and he can't get it his breath. Well, this film was very... There was a lot of really interesting drama and character interactions, and it was smart. There wasn't a lot of the kind of um, easy writing that you see goes into film like this. It wasn't a romantic comedy. There's romance elements to it. It wasn't a serious drama but there was a lot of serious drama in it. It was a really good mixture of things about a young woman who winds up on the staff of a late-night television show. Yep. Because the person running it, who's played by Emma Thompson, does not have uh, enough people of color on her staff. So or she's a, women. There's or not women. a so single woman. She's a diversity hire. So there's a lot of statements about women breaking into an industry that's controlled basically by men. 
and a lot of white dudes going, I wish I was a woman of color so right. I could There's get a job I'm unqualified lines. for, right, where you're exactly. just like, yo. yo so yo, 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 yo. that kind of thing, <laughs> if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, I really recommend that you get over yourself and you enjoy this movie because it yeah. has a lot of interesting things to say. I think I watched it with the right audience. A lot of the humor just hits. Yeah. It really does. And a lot of the... the it doesn't. There were, I think, a lot of women of color in mm-hmm. the audience. Right. And so the stuff that got a laugh got a good laugh. Right. And the, the it doesn't labor points either. It, Mindy Kaling's script does a really good job of hitting and running. So it's not like we're going to sit here and wallow in a particular point they're trying to make. They actually move on and they make, make another the point, point. And then they go, get, right. you're, you're a grown up. This is an R rated movie. Right. You've heard the words that we've said. Let's move on. Right, yeah. exactly. So I thought that it was really smart in that way. It was smart. It was funny. It kept moving. It had a pace. The characters go through growth. They make choices, good choices and bad choices. And it just moved along briskly, which is something I respect. One of the things I haven't liked about even like the goofy sort of Will Ferrell, uh, Melissa McCarthy uh, comedies, a lot of times, there are just dead spots in them where they'll go... 10 or 15 minutes with, like, nothing in particular happening. Yeah. And uh, people start improvising bits, and you're just watching that, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. This movie was scripted, and it felt like everything moved with a certain kind of tension that worked. So um, that would be my recommendation. I really enjoyed that film. What's your recommendation? I'm going to recommend a different movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, also in theaters now. Hopefully, it'll still be in theaters when this movie or when this comes out. But mm-hmm. if you missed it, see it when it comes out on streaming services or for rental. Right. That's still a thing. You get a red box it, and that's book smart. It's so good, y'all. Mm. <laughs> it's so good. So book smart is a movie. Um, people want to call it. There are two movies coming out this summer that people are calling The Girl Super Bad and The Kid mm-hmm. Super Bad. Uh, this would be The Girl Super Bad. And I guess plot wise, sure. But to me, this is The Girl Super Bad, like Bridesmaids is The Girl Hangover. Mm-hmm. It's not. There's not a relationship between the two movies. It's doesn't. just a way that you can sort of mm-hmm. categorize it. This movie is about two very smart best friends who find out uh, on the last day of school, uh, of high school, that all of their not partying and studying and focus so that they could get into good colleges did, in fact, get them into colleges, but all of the people that they've looked down on, who they thought weren't serious because they were out having fun, also got into those good colleges. And they're like, everybody thinks that we're not fun, but we're fun, and we're going to go out, and we're going to... Get it on with our crushes, and we're going to do this thing. And then, you know, hijinks ensue. And it's great. Uh, it's it's funny. The whole mm. thing is funny. The actresses, the two young ladies that they get to star, especially Beanie Feldman, are spectacular. Um, the There's a... There's a point, there's specifically, okay, so this is Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, and I hope that she directs more things, because it is from such a specific point of view, Mm -hmm. and also, which makes it universal. Hey guys, just so you know, specificity makes things universal. It's just how it works. It's a weird uh, sort of anti-counterintuitive thing. Uh, but so there's a scene where the two young ladies are, they get into a fight, into Mm -hmm. an argument and there's a point where the sound of them goes away and it's that point in an argument where nobody, like everybody has made their points and now it's just scoring points against Mm -hmm. the person. It doesn't matter what they're saying because what they're saying is not the point. And the way that it, it's shot is so smart and so mm-hmm. good. Uh, plus, the cast in this thing is great. Jason Sudeikis makes an appearance because Olivia Wilde is his wife. And mm-hmm. so, you know, get him in there. Uh, Jessica Williams, who I love very deeply, is so funny in this. Uh, and then all of the kids are so natural and good. Uh 
it's just really, it's great. It's so, it's a movie that I, I could put on in the background. I could sit down to watch with all my attention. Like, I think it's going to get a lot of play when it comes out on, in a format that I can actually watch in the house. Uh, I think it's a movie that I'll go to sleep to. I think, you know what I mean? Like, I just, it's so good. It's so good. And I hope that all of these kids are in all of the things going forward. I am. Um, I really enjoyed it because I felt like it didn't give me a false note. It, like we talked about the film we just mentioned, it kept things moving. It was a smart. The people in the movie are smart. They're not making stupid decisions. No. There's a whole diversity of characters in this film, and the comic performances range from really wild, over-the-top comedy to really subtle kind of verbal fencing between characters. But all of it is, like, real. Yes, and it all hits its mark, which is something, because there's an ending to the film that I was very concerned was going to be kind of, um, well, frankly, silly and ridiculous, like that, uh, and kind of uh, almost like an obligation. There's the, the big school fair. There's the, you know... Um, the graduation and all these other things uh, or plot points in movies like this that it leads up to, but it's honest in this case. And what happens feels honest, even though the situations are ridiculous. And there's one character who might actually kind of be a fairy. I don't know. She seems to be trans like <laughs> she's everywhere at the same time. Yeah. She's very funny. Yes. Yeah, I forgot about that character. Right. I'm like, who are you? Yes, I know who you're talking right. about. She's and just so, everywhere. And they keep, they make a point. They're like, how the fuck did you right. get here? Like, uh, there's scenes, uh, there, it's really inventive in terms of the way it does the comedy. There's even scenes of stop motion animation yep. that, that are really hysterical. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just, it feels very honest, as weirdly over the top as it gets sometimes. Yeah. So that would be one I would highly recommend. That's another film. I, I've and done really good just, with comedies. There's this nice... Okay. So it... it, it the main two girls mm-hmm. are a straight woman and a gay woman. Mm-hmm. And there's no... <laughs> there's a little bit of playing with that and that mm-hmm. the straight one thinks it's funny right. to make the gay one's parents who are very Christian but uh-huh. really love their daughter and want their daughter to be happy think that they are in a relationship. So there's a little bit of of playing right. with that, but there's never... The gay one is not interested in the straight one. The straight one never feels weird about... Like, it's... it's They're, a, they're best friends, period. That's yeah. fine. That's it. There's no, there's a little bit of romantic hijinks, but it's not their fault. <laughs> right. I, I really, that's what I, all, one of the things I liked about those two performers, they have amazing chemistry. They really did. And I, at no point, felt like they weren't best friends. And the way that these two people so deeply love each other. Yes. I mean, deeply and profoundly love I each other. I also honestly want to see more of the, they do this thing whenever they are getting dressed and getting mm-hmm. ready to go out where they are over the top effusive in mm-hmm. this really silly way about how good the other one right, looks. Right, exactly. And we need more of that. We need more women lifting the other mm-hmm. women in their lives up and not being jealous or protective of their own place in right. the status and there was another scene also where one of the characters meets the girl who's the girl at school with reputation. Yes. And their exchange about, yeah. I expected to be talked about that way from all the from guys, the the but guys, the girls the, are doing the, it too. Yeah, but then the girls are doing it Right. Too. And that and scene shitty. also is something that you don't see a lot. And there's a lot of... Um, because th- these characters as sort of forward-thinking and open-minded as mm-hmm. they are, are slut-shamey. At right. one point, and they get called out on it. There's still parts of a culture. Yes, and it, uh, yeah, the, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of really good conversations in this film, but it's not done in a way that stops the film dead, like some movies we've just seen that we can describe. Ah. We have the cats, and they're in, infringing on our territory. So I think that might be where we need to end it. Right. But yes, Booksmart is 
fantastic. And it's not only fantastic for women to see. Everyone should see this Everyone movie. should, yes. It's good. If you're not going to see a film with an atomic-powered dinosaur, this is the film you should see. Fuck it. See them both. That's a kick-ass right. double feature. <laughs> right. uh, I'm sure, actually, the, the kids in this movie would like to see a movie about an atomic-powered dinosaur. I'm sure. For sure. Right. So that's going to do it for this week. Mm-hmm. Next week, Cat's Eye, three movies, one of which with the problematic-as-fuck James Wood, so sorry about that. Uh but bad things happen to him in it, so that's good. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, we are available at latecomerspod at gmail.com and also on Twitter at latecomerspod and also on Facebook, Latecomers Podcast. Please rate and review our show. That would be amazing. We would really appreciate it. It helps more people find us. And that's what we want more people to find us. But not in real life. Please don't try and find us They're in real life. They come looking for us. I know uh, how to karate chop people under the nose. He really does. I it's do. not going to kill you, but it probably will hurt. It will hurt. I remind you, take your medicine. And remember... Better, better late than, than never. never.